Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Delina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah and Kristen recently talked about the history of Halloween and one of the most well-known traditions associated with it. That's trick-or-treating. But, of course, there are some other traditions that also go hand-in-hand with Halloween. Legends, ghost stories, and haunted houses were the ones that I had in mind in particular. So, essentially, the tradition of scaring the poop out of ourselves. (laughs) And I'm the biggest wimp, personally, when it comes to scary stuff. I don't know why, but we all seem to kind of enjoy that. Even I do once in a while, even though I'm a really big wimp about scary stuff. I mean, I can't even watch those commercials for scary movies. <laughs> I can't even know that they're on. If I know that they're on, then you I'll get scared. You need to leave the room if you if you have a scary movie commercial yeah. come on. <laughs> I mean, if you hear the noise or something, I mean, your imagination just starts working, I guess, and, and scares you to death. But uh, even I have enjoyed a good haunted house or ghost story or two. How about you? It's been a while since I've been to one of those real haunted houses. But, yeah, they're fun. You know, everybody has traumatic memories of being <laughs> chased by the, the guy with with the um, chainsaw or something. At Did one you have a strategy? <laughs> a strategy for, for escape? Yeah, you have to have a strategy when you go into these things, Sarah. Move past those people quickly. They'll move on to the people in line behind yeah, you. The run straight through <laughs> is definitely a strategy. There's also the hold on tight to whoever's around you and like, mm-hmm. try to get in the middle. There's also the throw your friend at the scary thing and then run as fast as you Sacrifice. can. That's one of my favorites. Yep. Okay, note to self, don't go to a haunted house with Dublina then. But these haunted houses that are set up to entertain people around Halloween, commercial haunted houses, I guess, are sometimes based around spooky legends or stories, usually fake ones. But the haunted house we're going to talk about in today's podcast, which is often called the most haunted house in America, has a story behind it with characters and at least some events that were very, very real. And the woman at the center of this tale is named Marie Delphine LaLaurie. And often she's simply known as Madame LaLaurie or even Mad Madame LaLaurie, which is a little hard to say quickly. But if you've ever taken one of those haunted New Orleans tours, which I have not, I've been to New Orleans a few times, but I haven't haven't gotten to go on one of these yet. Uh, you've probably heard her name. I mean, uh, we've heard we've heard so many suggestions from listeners who have taken tours like that. And that's really saying something if you think about it, because it is, after all, New Orleans we're talking about. There are so many famous people associated with that city. Right. And it's often considered one of the most haunted cities in America, mm-hmm. if not the most haunted city in America. But geography aside, it's tough to ignore a story like Delphine Lalaurie's. It involves sadistic torture, cold-blooded murder, botched medical experiments, hauntings, and even a curse. Like a lot of stories we tell, though, it's tough to tell fact from myth in this one. The story that's generally circulated today in 2012 isn't exactly 100% verifiable, and many details have changed since the years directly following the events which took place in the mid-1800s or so, suggesting that the tale has been exaggerated and embellished upon along the way. But we're not going to start by debunking everything. I mean, what kind of Halloween podcast would this be if we didn't try to, at least at the beginning, spook you out a little bit? So to that end, let us begin with a legend, that of Mad Madame LaLaurie. 
It begins, for our purposes at least, in the early 1830s in New Orleans. A prominent and beautiful Creole woman named Marie Delphine Lalaurie and her husband, a French physician named Louis Lalaurie, buy a home at 1140 Royal Street in the French Quarter and move in with her daughters from a previous marriage. Now, a couple things to know about Delphine. She had grown up in a wealthy and influential Creole family, and Louis had recently immigrated to New Orleans after earning his medical degree. Delphine had also actually been married twice before, and her husbands were said to have died or disappeared under unknown or mysterious circumstances. Hmm. So this new couple, her, her third marriage, they start decking out their home with the finest art, the finest furniture. After all, they, and Delphine especially, are really the toast of high society in town. They entertain constantly. They throw these opulent parties at their home several times a week. And all things being equal, a couple like this might seem uh, really ir- irreproachable, uh, kind of an unstoppable social force. Everybody would want to attend these fabulous parties. But around 1832, some pretty nasty rumors started circling about them. The slaves who work in their household seem very thin, they seem malnourished, and it's said that they also seem afraid of Delphine, and she's been seen speaking quite harshly to them. So people start talking. What what exactly is going on in this lovely home? Right. Well, speaking harshly to your slaves is one thing in this time, but some of the rumors are even worse than that. A neighbor, for instance, claims that the Lalauries have slaves chained in their attic. Some people also supposedly link the Lalauries to notorious voodoo queen and former podcast subject Marie Laveau, who would have been a contemporary. Marie or Marie, too, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it pretty confusing you never know. with those two. But this is just the legend part, after all. So for the most part, though, people do seem to find reasons to dismiss all these rumors, probably because they wanted to. They wanted to socialize with the, this couple. And Delphine was, after all, so beautiful, so charming. Uh, some people found it hard to believe that she could be so cruel. But there was also some contradictory pieces of evidence that made everything seem okay on the surface. For one thing, at parties, Delphine, when she would have just a little bit of wine left over in her glass, she would often be seen offering that and saying a few kind words as well to a slave who was standing near her. So giving the backsplash of her wine that was seen as a, as a nice <laughs> doesn't gesture. doesn't sound as good when you say it that way, but it, it would have seemed nice to other attendees at her parties. And, and I think the other, the other point is a little stronger than that, too. It's that uh, with all these rumors about her malnourished slaves, her black coachman always looked very healthy. He looked sleek and well-dressed. And surely, it seemed, a woman who abused her slaves wouldn't have a coachman who looked uh, so, so fit and proper. The rumors were often dismissed as lies spread by Americans. Just an aside here, this was not too, too long after the Louisiana Purchase, and there were tensions between the Anglo-Americans who had arrived in the city since then and the Creoles who were native to the area. Americans were gaining power in the public arena, but Creoles still dominated in terms of social clout. So here's a vignette associated with this legend here, just to give you an idea of people's suspicions and how they kind of played out. 
An American lawyer in the neighborhood heard the rumors about the Lalauries and sent his Creole employee over to check things out. He thought that uh, the Creole employee would be a little better received. Maybe this information would be better taken from someone um, just of the same background. And so he sent this employee over to remind Delphine about the local laws regarding proper treatment of slaves. Just another little side note here for you. You couldn't just treat your slaves however you wanted to at this time in New Orleans. There was something in effect in Louisiana called the Code Noir. So this meant that you couldn't just torture, mutilate, or sexually abuse your slaves. You couldn't do maybe like the worst things to them. I think people sort of imagine slavery. If you're an owner, anything goes. You could kill your slaves if you wanted to. And I guess in some places you probably could, but here there, there was a rule of some sort. So at least officially you couldn't do these terrible things. Yes. And according to Victoria Love and Lorelai Shannon's book, Mad Madam Lalaurie, New Orleans' most famous murderess revealed, you could dole out, quote, ordinary punishments like confinement, chaining, and whipping, but that was about it. Uh, Already sounds pretty terrible um, with just those, but... Uh, apparently there were limits there. Delphine apparently charmed the pants off of this lawyer's assistant who came by to talk to her, and he returned singing her praises and expressing utter disbelief that she could even be capable of abusing anyone. So it's almost like a H.H. Holmes thing mm-hmm. going on here. I know we talked a lot during the H.H. Holmes podcast about how he got away with or uh, won a lot of people over because he was so charming. Threw off their suspicions. Exactly. So, yeah, the, the uh, Creole man who sent to investigator he thinks no way this lady could be breaking the uh the code noir so then in 1833 though there was an incident that cast the beautiful delphine in a very different light so nobody's uh, personal testimonies are going to cut it anymore delphine was seen chasing a young slave girl around the house with a bullwhip and apparently the girl had hit a tangle while combing delphine's hair and the woman just became completely unhinged at this, the little girl ended up on the rooftop during the chase and was finally seen plummeting into the courtyard, landing with this bone-chilling thud, and the fall which killed her seemed to get no reaction out of Delphine, which which was the added (laughs) creepy touch on this story. Delphine was said to have looked down at her coldly and then just went back inside. So, some of the other servants after this supposedly quietly came out, collected the body, buried the little girl later that night next to the well in the courtyard. But neighbors had witnessed this, too. And so the authorities were called in and Delphine was punished for, for breaking this code. She was fined $300. Several slaves were taken away from her. It seemed like uh, a turning point in this in this story of or the rumor surrounding this woman. But remember who she is. Delphine is well connected. Her family is very well connected. And she got a relative to secretly buy the slaves back for her. Not that it remained much of a secret at all. I mean, she continued to entertain regularly. So people knew that she kept slaves in the house and rumors of abuse continued to kind of whirl around her. Then on April 10th, 1834, everything started to come to ahead. The Lollery Mansion caught on fire and the flames started to spread really quickly throughout the main house. So friends and neighbors, they quickly showed up to help. At this time, Louis and Delphine seemed especially worried about their valuables 
antiques, art, fine furniture, and they try to enlist all these people who've come out to help them to get the stuff out of the house. Yeah, but word also quickly spreads among the helpers that the fire was started by this old woman who was chained to the stove in the kitchen. And in some sources that you'll see for this story, the old woman is actually said to be the grandmother of the little girl who died in the fall. Her motive in uh, starting this fire, perhaps, would have been revenge, of course, or maybe desperation. But People started to ask, okay, well, where are the other slaves in the household? Because we know that they are here. Delphine supposedly said things like, never mind them, save the valuables. Louis told everybody, just essentially mind your own business, save our stuff in our house, please. Finally, though, the firemen who had shown up on the scene uh, hear a rumor that there are slaves in the attic. And so they rush up there only to find the doors sealed off with these giant padlocks. And because Delphine and Louis aren't offering up a key, they have to break down the doors. And when they open those doors, they're hit by an odor that causes them to gag and retch immediately. But it gets much worse when they can actually see what that stench is coming from. There are several slaves chained in there, some close to death, others probably wishing that they were because they've been mutilated as if part of some sadistic experiment. Some examples of what the rescuers saw uh, slaves covered in honey with ants and other bugs crawling all over them. A woman with her skin peeled in a spiral around her body so that she looked kind of caterpillar-like almost. Also, a man and a woman who had been part of some crude sex change operation. Basically, their genitals had been removed and swapped. They also saw a man with a hole drilled in his head and a woman whose bones had been broken and reset at all these odd angles so that she was forced to move like a crab. And uh, she was so frightened when the firemen did burst into the room that she scuttled into a corner and just proceeded to shriek every time somebody tried to get near her. So... Aside from these horrors, these living horrors in the room, there were also buckets of random body parts everywhere. And, of course, blood all over the place, all over the floors, this horrible stench. So the slaves were removed from the premises and taken to a nearby slave-holding area to, to try to see if they, if they could receive treatment and survive. Most of them did not. Meanwhile, though, the fire had been brought under control to some degree. And about 6 p.m., Delphine's coachman brought the carriage up to the home side door. It was time for her regular evening ride, you know, just pretending nothing out of the ordinary had happened that day. But by this time, of course, the crowd that had gathered to watch help out with the fire has heard about what's in the attic. And they've become an angry mob once they realize what happened to the slaves. And Delphine actually has the gall at this point to wave at them as she hops into her carriage for her evening ride. As that carriage drives off, they start to chase her. They don't want to let her get away. So the mob follows her all the way to Bayou St. John, but they weren't fast enough to catch her. Delphine hops on a boat that takes her across Lake Pontchartrain, and according to legend, she was never seen in the area again. 
So rumor has it that after this carriage flight out of town, Delphine either went to Mobile, Alabama, or New York City, and from there went on to France, where she lived out the rest of her days on the run. Some say she was even killed by a boar while hunting in France in 1842. There are others, though, who think that she never left Louisiana at all, and then other people still who think that she did return, although after her death, her body was secretly returned, secretly buried in St. Louis Cemetery number one. Uh, so lots of lots of ideas about what happened Theories, to her. Yes. Yeah. According to a 1941 article in the Times-Picune, a plaque was found there in St. Louis Cemetery number one four or five years before this particular article was written, so I guess the mid-1930s or so, by a man who used to work as a sexton for the cemetery. The plaque had Delphine's name and that 1842 death date on it, though it wasn't attached to a tomb, so it's not like anyone could exhume a body and make sure that it was her Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But people did assume that the theory was correct that her body had been sent back after she was killed. So one last element to to the story you're likely to hear in New Orleans, too, and that's, of course, haunting. Stories of hauntings at her former home on Royal Street began almost immediately after this incident. And again, according to legend, authorities who tried to secure the property directly after the fire reported hearing all these strange sounds, even people crying out in some unknown language. But for almost 200 years, visitors and residents of the house have continued to hear strange sounds, unearthly sounds, and even seen figures, apparitions, including that of a little girl, maybe the one that fell off the roof, perhaps, a handsome gentleman, perhaps uh, Monsieur Louis, and uh, even a woman who is thought to be Madame LaLaurie. In the 1970s, when the home was being renovated and the floorboards were torn up, human bones were supposedly found underneath some of the floors. As the story goes, this at last was the explanation for those strange sounds that the authorities heard after the fire. Delphine had apparently essentially buried slaves alive under her floors, too. And the strange dialect that was heard was supposed to be maybe an African dialect of some sort. So that is our That's the story. spooky legend. Yes, that version of events, maybe with some differing or additional details, is pretty much what you'll hear on any tour of Haunted New Orleans and what you'll find in a lot of written accounts of Delphine LaLaurie, including one in Strange True Stories of Louisiana by George Washington Cable, though some of the weirder mutilations of victims aren't in this account. Uh, he really tried to stick to documented sources. I think. Mm -hmm. And Ghostly Cries from Dixie by Pat Fitzhugh is another one. Uh, Jean Delavine's 1946 Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans is another. Online, uh, NOLA.com has an account of this legend and also includes some newspaper articles from the time that corroborate some of the details included in that legend. A very few, though, like historian Victoria Love, whose book we mentioned earlier in the show, have really tried to separate fact from fiction in this story. And Love tried to piece together this story using only official documents, archives. So, of course, we had to look at her work and try to get to the bottom of what is definitely true about this legend. That's what we do. <laughs> so Delphine, the main character in the story, from what we can tell, she seems to be 
in many respects, uh, you know, as she is portrayed in the legend, that she was born into an elite family. That's certainly the case. She was born in about 1775 into a prominent New Orleans family. Her father was Louis D. McCarty, and she had relatives who were very influential and held high-profile positions in the Louisiana government. And since her family was so well-to-do, she probably would have been taught to read and write, but a lot of her education probably had more to do with etiquette, entertaining, running a household. We've talked before about even the art of conversation, which clearly would have been something that would contribute to her being so charming. But one thing Love points out as a little strange for, for Delphine's early life, considering her social standing and her reputed beauty, is that if the year of her birth, as we know it, is correct, she didn't get married for the first time until age 24, which still sounds pretty young, but it was more common for women like her to get married by about 16 or 17 years old. Love also uncovered some some different information about those two previous husbands. She did, as you remember, have two previous marriages prior to Dr. LaLaurie. One was to the Spanish Don Ramon Lopez y Angulo, who became an intendant of Louisiana in 1800. The second was to a Frenchman, Jean-Pierre Poulon Blanc, who was a bit of a shady character. He was involved in New Orleans politics, but also mixed up in slave trading, mixed up in piracy. This reminded me a little bit of our our last episode on Jim Bowie. Yeah, I think he also had some Jean Lafitte connections there. And this is where we find the first biggish discrepancy in Delphine's life story, as you mentioned. It said that her first two husbands died under mysterious circumstances, which sort of suggests that she had something to do with their deaths. Strongly suggests it. It strongly (laughs) suggests that and adds to this myth that has grown up around her and makes her into a scarier character, I guess. But according to Love's book and the Times Pick article that we mentioned earlier, it seems that historians generally believe that Lopez died of heart failure, either in Havana Cuba or en route to Louisiana from Spain. And Love points out that it makes sense that Blanc's death was undocumented because of the, as you mentioned, the shadiness of his lifestyle. Kind of a pirate. Right. He just disappeared, but there's really no proof that Delphine had anything to do with it or that she would have even had motive to do so. I mean, sure, she stood to gain some wealth from her husband's deaths, but as Love points out, she was already very wealthy. Another discrepancy here is the number of children Delphine had from these previous marriages. The legend usually has her with two daughters from one of these previous marriages. In reality, she had a daughter with Lopez and four kids with Blanc rather than just the two daughters. So catching up, though, with this third marriage, Delphine married Louis-Nicolas Lalaurie on January 28, 1828. And he he was a pretty recent arrival to New Orleans from France. He had only gotten there about three years before that. Love's book describes him as a pretty mediocre medical student who ended up graduating from dental school and immigrating immediately after that. When he arrived in New Orleans, though, he, he tried to establish a medical practice for himself and advertised himself as someone who could cure a specific deformity, in this case, hunches. So this might be where the whole storyline of him doing medical experiments came from, if he was really advertising himself as this experimental doctor. 
Delphine and Louis had one son together who was named Jean-Louis, and they had him soon after they were married. In 1832, they bought that mansion at 1140 Royal Street, and they started throwing those lavish parties that we talked about. And Louis probably worked from home, although it didn't seem as though his practice exactly flourished. They found, I think Love found receipts that mentioned him creating a potion or two for this person or that person, but nothing that really proved a consistent medical practice. So catching up, though, with the root of of this story, what really happened in that house to those slaves? And according to Love and Shannon, terrible crimes did occur in the house, but they weren't quite as macabre as legend might suggest. There were rumors of slave abuse circulating about the couple in 1832, but there were also some facts that seemed to contradict certain aspects of the rumors, or at least seem a little bit out of sync with the character of the legendary Mad Madame. For one thing, in 1832, the LaLauris apparently petitioned the court to free one of their slaves. The slave was ultimately freed in 1833, which was a few months before they were run out of town for their treatment of slaves. And according to Love, this was the second time Delphine had petitioned to free a slave. She'd done the same thing back in 1819. So it seemed a little unusual for somebody who hated slaves, who tortured and mutilated them to do this. Delphine also loaned money to a free woman of color named Sarah Lee in 1833. Later, she sued her for the repayment of that loan, but still, the fact that she gave this woman a loan in the first place, again, doesn't really fit with that reputation of pure cruelty. I mean, we don't know the circumstances, but it just seems a little off. One thing from the legend that couldn't be confirmed by love, which makes the build-up to the fire a teeny bit less dramatic, is the story about the little girl who fell, or jumped perhaps, from the roof of the house. Love says that there's no documentation of this, nothing to confirm that complaints were actually filed against Delphine afterward, and nothing that shows that a trial actually took place or that any legal action was taken against the Lalauris. There also wasn't any mention of the incident in any of the newspaper articles after the fire, which is strange because it's not like these newspapers were pulling any punches when it came to coverage of Delphine and her mistreatment of slaves. You think that they would jump all over Mm -hmm. another detail like that. Also, when authorities dug up and searched the courtyard, no human bodies were found there. Okay, though, there are some legal documents hanging around that um, do suggest some new things about the LaLauris, though. One are some documents that show Delphine sued Louis for legal separation, saying that he beat her. Uh, the beating was supposedly the same day they petitioned to free the slave. Not sure what the connection there would have been. Yeah, maybe they fought about the slave, about freeing him. You know. Who knows? Ultimately, Delphine did not go forward with the domestic abuse case. Another very true thing, and one that's very important to the legend, is that a fire did break out at the home on April 10th, 1834, and slaves were found locked away in the upper galleries of the mansion. But the more gruesome descriptions of how the slaves looked when they were found, you know, covered in honey, bones set like a crab, there aren't really any official records of this. And Love suggests that these descriptions, for the most part, didn't appear until Delavine's book that we mentioned that came out in 1946. So a, a long stretch of time there before these very freak show sort of details appear. Right. So the conclusion that we can draw here is that the details were introduced into the record later. 
An official statement by a judge in 1834 suggests that only seven slaves were rescued from the fire. They were chained, they were beaten, starved, and we're going to be left to die in a fire after all. So all of this is horrible enough, but there's nothing to suggest in the record. There's nothing in the record, I should say, to suggest that uh, these the more atrocious medical experiments that are mentioned in the legend actually took place. Love admits that police records in New Orleans don't go back that far, so there is that. But she points out that newspaper illustrations probably would have attempted to depict these atrocities. They probably would have tried to draw a picture of the crab woman had there mm-hmm. actually been one. It's pretty easy to imagine. So it's clear that something terrible did happen, maybe as a result of Delphine's direct actions, but uh, she probably at least knew what was going on, uh, even if she wasn't super directly involved. The fact that Louis had been accused of violence before also indicates that he might have played a pretty prominent role, maybe a more prominent role than he does in the legend, uh, even though Delphine gets most of the credit. So as the legend goes, nobody has any idea what happened to the Lollaries after that fire. But Love's research shows us that actually it's pretty clear what happened to them. Delphine and Louis went to France and lived there for several years. There are a bunch of family letters at the archives of the Missouri Historical Society that help to prove this. Delphine and her family members weren't shy about correspondence, and she wasn't exactly trying to lay low while she was over there. According to Love, she she really didn't have to because she couldn't be punished over there for her New Orleans crimes. Yeah, and she kept uh, a hand in New Orleans, too, for sure. She gave a relative power of attorney over her Louisiana property so that she didn't lose everything. She corresponded with him regularly. She also corresponded with her children. Uh, even though some of them did live with her for a while in France, some of them were back in Louisiana. Initially, she and Louis lived together for a little while at his family's estate back in France, but they separated at some point, and Louis's last recorded correspondence is from Cuba in 1842. As for Delphine, she did not get killed in France by a wild boar. According to Love, she did return to New Orleans in 1842, not dead, settled in the Faubourg Marigny, and probably lived there until her death sometime between 1855 and 1858. Yeah, and we should point out that the Marigny is very, it's like right next to the French Quarter, so she was probably with her old neighbors. Letters show that she was set on returning when she was in France, though relatives tried to discourage her from doing so. There was a, there's a letter in Love's book from one of her sons to another relative saying, I, I don't think she should come, but she wants to. Please try to discourage her from doing this. I mean, they realized after what had happened what it would mean for her to come back for her and the rest of the family, but she w- almost didn't realize or, or didn't care. Mm-hmm. Receipts show that she was having the home in the Marigny renovated in the early 1840s and paying bills on it. So there's some evidence there to support this. Love also cites a documented story that tells of someone called N.L. Lalaurie and two of her daughters living in New Orleans until the mid to late 1850s. Also, certain aspects of Delphine's estate weren't settled until 1858. And, well, I guess it's possible that it really took that long to settle her estate. It's maybe unlikely. Okay, so what about the plaque, though? The plaque that was discovered in 1941. Well, though Love still thinks it's possible that she's buried in Cemetery Number 1, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 or Number 2, she thinks that the plaque is probably a hoax because of this other evidence that she's found. Okay, so something that tied into the legend more than what had happened in real life. Right. 
All right. As for the house, we did mention in the beginning this is considered one of the most haunted houses in New Orleans. It's changed hands many times over the year, and it's been used for all sorts of things, a a residence, a private residence, apartments, a school, a home for wayward boys, businesses ranging from a bar to a furniture store. But there is a curse associated with it. Supposedly, bad luck comes to anyone who owns it, and any business that's in it fails. The most recent owner was Nicolas Cage, the actor, until he lost it due to delinquent taxes, so seemingly confirming this curse. As we mentioned, Tales of Haunting started almost immediately after the fire in the 1800s. Police and firemen who secured the building after the fire heard strange noises, but after the search, they couldn't find anything. That's supposedly when those haunted rumors began. We told you about that when we were Mm -hmm. recounting the legend. So some weird stuff that's happened there over the years. In the 1870s, the home becomes a gambling house, and people report seeing strange lights and shadows in different apartments. In the 1920s, it becomes a tenement home, and many of the residents there report ghost sightings. One tenant saw a man walking, carrying his head on his arm. Another saw a black man wrapped in chains. And still another, a young mother who lived there, she saw basically the ghost of a wealthy white woman bending over her sleeping baby. In some stories, some sources where you see this recounted, the ghost is actually trying to suffocate the baby. So this is supposed to be Delphine. Delphine. Yeah. And then uh, the most recent one, the 1950s, the the home became a furniture store and the owner was suspecting vandalism because every morning he found that his merchandise had been ruined. It was covered in some strange, stinky, unidentifiable liquid. So one night he decides to camp out with a shotgun, see who the perpetrator is, who is sneaking into his store and, and ruining everything. And all night he waits, and he doesn't see anybody. But in the morning, his furniture is still ruined, just like always. And soon after that, he closes the store for good. So all kinds of things, ranging from ghost sightings to just plain bad luck, seem to be associated with this home. Just to bring it full circle from those first suspicions of a haunting that story about bodies being found under the floorboards during a renovation in the 70s love doubts the story is at all true she couldn't find any documentation of it and points out that had a bunch of remains of this nature been found in such a way it probably would have been big news at that time but nobody seems to have covered it at all and i mean especially because this is such a huge story still i mean you might think at first oh well it happened A long, long time ago, it's just kind of an archaeological footnote or something. But because this is this huge tourist legend sort of thing in New Orleans, it would get some press. Right. But the haunted house isn't the only aspect of the story that's creepy. This (laughs) legend has kind of grown and kind of infected other arts, other areas. Putting it. In other words, there is a haunted painting associated with this legend. It was painted by New Orleans artist Ricardo Pustiano originally in 1997 for a man who used to live in an apartment in the Lollerie House. He wanted it as a connection to the building's past, and it's a painting of Delphine that's similar to a portrait of her that ran in the Times-Picune in 1934. And this painting is the image that comes up a lot of her. If you Google Delphine LaLaurie, mm-hmm. this is what you'll see. 
So the owner seemed to be into the home's haunted past. Obviously, he wanted this painting. painting to commemorate it. I mean, to even live there knowing that it was a haunted house. I mean, I I would never be able to do it. (laughs) Props to him. But So you would think that this wouldn't really scare him. But the painting eventually really did. It would apparently rock on the wall during seances. So he would have seances, too. I mean, he's into this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I think he started having seances. Maybe he had them before, but I think he had them specifically because of this painting, because he thought it was a little fishy. Something weird is going on with this. So during these seances, it would rock on the wall, sometimes fall down. He said objects in his apartment would have been moved around by some unseen force. So he's sufficiently creeped out and he gives the painting to another tenant in the mansion. She soon started having trouble with it, too. She would hear footsteps, weird sounds, and she said that the portrait's eyes would follow her across the room. Uh And, I mean, this is what really just, like, gives me the chills. She started hearing it whisper to her. The eyes gets to me more. That's It's a classic, like, cheesy horror movie or something, but the painting's eyes. Yeah. So... (laughs) She eventually needed to get rid of it, too. It was creeping her out too much. So the second owner eventually returned it to the painter. He seems to have been pretty pleased to have gotten it back, though. He said, quote, it's great publicity to paint a haunted portrait. Um, Indeed. (laughs) Yeah, and I think this particular artist has other haunted paintings. This isn't the only one. Oh, man. Yeah, so. Well, we all know what to get (laughs) Dublina for Christmas. No, don't. Please don't. (laughs) I couldn't take it. I would have to run away. I would immediately (laughs) give the painting to someone. Sarah? Back to the artist. It's a good business, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I don't know if our listeners are creeped out, but I really am. So I think... So today we have two more postcards from world travelers. We always love those. These in particular have to do with people who visited a museum after listening to one of our podcasts, a related museum. The first one is from Jessamine, and she says, Dear Sarah and Dublina, one of my favorite podcasts ever was your two-parter on Fritjof Nansen and the Fram. So when I had the chance to visit the Fram Museum in Oslo, I seized it. It's really cool seeing the ship in person, and the museum shows items from Nansen and Amundsen's famous polar voyages on the ship. Plus, you can go on board. That's really cool. That is cool. The Kontiki Museum and Viking Ship Museum are both nearby to round out an awesome ship-themed day. That does sound like a pretty cool day. I, I want to go now. I know. <laughs> Sometimes I will talk about these museums or, or places to visit on the show, but it's when I hear back from you guys that I actually want to go visit this place. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing that's awesome about that is just actually being able to go on the ship. I mean, you think about museums and you're usually not allowed to touch anything, or if you are, it's very limited. But to be able to go on board um, when you're thinking and learning about these voyages is pretty cool. Very cool. Thanks for writing in. So our other postcard is from listener Tasha. She sent a beautiful portrait of Empress Cece and wrote to us, Hi, Sarah and Dublina and guest host. I bought this postcard from the Cece Museum you mentioned in your podcast on the Empress of Austria. I was on the train from Munich to Vienna, having just visited one of the reminders of Ludwig II. When I heard about the museum, I had to go. It was really interesting and involved a tour of the royal apartments. Thanks for bringing history to life. All the best. Uh, So another one where you really get to kind of see the the inside story. Tour tour Cece's apartments. That sounds pretty cool. 
So thank you guys so much for, for sending us postcards, probably making us add to the list of places we want to go in the world. <laughs> it's a long list. It is a long list, but it's always good to have that keep growing. And if you want to share any of your travels with us or help us come up with ideas for our own future travels, or if you've been to New Orleans and done the Haunted House tour that includes information about the Lollaries and you have a vignette that we didn't mention that you want to share, or maybe you have some other Haunted House strategies you'd like to share with Sarah, <laughs> since apparently she's very unprepared and doesn't have any of her own, uh, please write to us. We are at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at Mist in History, and we are also on Facebook. And we do have an article on Haunted Houses, don't we? We do. I think it's called Top 10 Real-Life Haunted Houses. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this one's on there, too. We also have How Haunted Houses Work, I think. Okay, well, so that's what I need to start with, yes, I guess. Because I don't know if it has strategies in there. Maybe I should add a page or something. <laughs> All I know now is not to go with Dublina. <laughs> so you can check that out. It's called How Haunted Houses Work, and you can find it by searching on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.